Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 18, To Boldly Go for Brabant. Philip the Bold and his wife Margaret ruled Flanders for 20 years, from 1384 until 1404. And during that time, they would expand their family's rule into Limburg, as well as set their successors up to rule Brabant, Holland, Zeeland, Hanno, and other low country territories as well. The manner in which Philip trod this treacherous path, in particular, is giving of lavish gifts and making steady and long-term alliances would set the tone for a dynasty that was going to contribute so much to the emergence of a lowland culture and identity. The basic aim of most great rulers in the Middle Ages was to bring as many things under their control as they could. Centralization over a large area was not something that could be achieved easily, as we have seen time and again with the constant feuding and scheming going on between noble families. Societies are and were complex, made up of many different parties with many different interests, as well as cultural and economic frameworks which a ruler had to consider carefully. If, as was the case in the Low Countries, those societies also diversified according to stark regional and urban differences and demands, then centralization was a difficult thing indeed. The Peace of Tournai, which brought the Ghent War to an end in 1385, exhibited Philip's understanding that he must work with the big and wealthy cities, with their powerful craft guilds and their urban patriciates. Remember that in that agreement, Philip did not really punish Ghent, despite the years of chaos it had instigated, but rather he reaffirmed its historic town privileges. Philip was playing a long game. Over time, he tactfully appointed the right people, being his own people, to traditional posts, creating the impression of a continued autonomy for certain sections of this volatile society and not endangering anyone's sense of pride. He also created new offices, however, and subtly placed people loyal to him above others who held old and long-established positions. He created a new centralized tribunal under his authority and a chamber of accounts. In the mid-1380s, he intelligently made Lille the new administrative centre of Flanders, meaning that the Flemish did not have to feel like they were being governed from the distant lands of Burgundy and from some random, unknown, mustard-smelling town called Dijon. These kind of administrative reforms were his specialities, together with working to create alliances and giving gifts in order to ensure loyalty to him in Europe and across the various low countries as well. In 1385 in particular, he made several moves to these ends. But before we get into that, it's worth giving a brief overview of the biggest and most influential of the territories which made up the low countries and what circumstances they were facing at this dawning of Philip's reign. We have spoken about Flanders already at length. Don't worry, we're not going to get into much Flanders today. By the end of 1385, it hadn't even begun recovering from the Ghent War, which 
had been just the latest in a long line of internal violence between partisan factions that had plagued the territory for over a century. Helders is a province that we haven't spoken about much as yet. Being the easternmost of the Low Countries, Helders was more intertwined with the vagaries of both the German Empire, the major bishoprics of Cologne and Munster, but also with the Hanseatic trade network, than say Holland or Brabant. In the 1370s, it had a succession crisis of its own, and erupted into civil war when the Duke, Reynold III, and his brother both died without issue. They left two sisters and their husbands to fight it out. Two main factions had emerged, the Bronkhorses and the Hecarans. Out of this, in 1379, William of Helders and Ulick, supported by the Bronkhorses, came out on top with a shaky regime. He was supported by the Holy Roman Emperor, but could not fully placate some of the cities in his domain or an opposing noble faction that remained from the Civil War. For him, remaining the legitimate ruler was very important. Holland was also engaged in an on-again, off-again civil war of its own, the so-called Hook and Cod Wars. The victor of that war's first phase, William V, had taken over his mother's domains in Holland and Zeeland in 1354 and then Hanno upon her death in 1356. Soon thereafter, he began to show signs of insanity and was soon consigned to being locked in a castle, and his younger brother, Albert, took over the regency of the three territories. Albert oversaw half a century of relative stability in Holland, supported by and supportive of the Cod faction, which largely represented the burghers and the urban elite in the cities. The tensions never truly disappeared, however. The Hooks, being mainly various nobles who did not support Albert, would go to extreme lengths to stop him being absolutely in bed with the Cods. And I mean literally in bed. In the mid-1380s, Albert, known for his frivolous fancy for females, became involved with a lady called Aleda van Pulcheist. This became a catalyst for another eruption of the Civil War. Aleda, a member of the Cod faction, was seen by the Hooks as gaining too much political influence over Albert, and she would be assassinated by them in 1392. The brutal revenge this evoked from Albert saw Hook supporters having to flee for their lives as he sought to punish those responsible, as well as, you know, took the opportunity to settle a few other political scores. So Holland, although nowhere near as populated or wealthy as Flanders, was beginning to show echoes of the same kind of unrest which had plagued that province. Luxembourg, which we have ignored largely in our story, was very much under the thrall of feudalism. The House of Luxembourg had actually gone way beyond the borders of their little low country domain, and by the late 14th century was one of the two most powerful houses in the German Empire, and at this stage, often the emperors, as well as the kings of Bohemia. That's pretty amazing, and it goes to show what could happen if you ignore Luxembourg. Unfortunately, it is the way of the world to ignore Luxembourg, and so we are largely going to continue ignoring Luxembourg. Suffice to say that in Luxembourg itself, at this time, the nobility in general just kept much tighter control over everything than in the other major low countries. Friesland was being Friesland, full of Frisians, feeling free but fighting themselves in their own factional dispute between the Fettkopers and the Schieringers. Lastly, and most importantly for the content of this episode, Brabant and Limburg were ruled by the Duchess Joanna. 
She and her husband, Wenceslau, who was the brother of the emperor and one of the Luxembourgers, had made a series of joyous entries into Brabantine towns in the 1350s as the new Duke and Duchess, and signed documents that affirmed the rights of the Estates of Brabant. But shortly after that, the Brabant War of Succession had begun, as Joanna's sister Margaret and her husband, the then Count of Flanders Louis of Marley, took gumption at the idea of Brabant passing to the House of Luxembourg. They had garnered enough support to block the possibility of that happening should Joanna and Wenceslau bear no heirs or successors. If this sounds really unfamiliar to you, then I'm afraid you might have missed episode 14 in this series, which is all about this topic, and which you should definitely listen to. Otherwise, you're probably really confused at the moment and probably distracted by the question, who the hell calls their child Wenceslau? Anyway, in the War of Brabant Succession, Flanders had ended up taking chunks of Brabant, such as Antwerp and Mekela. Even though Joanna and her husband, Incy Wincy Wensy, remained in power, they did not, in the end, have any children. So the question of who would inherit the titles to Brabant, Limburg, and an area called the Ophermas from them continued to be a thorny issue, which by the 1380s, concerned the rulers of Flanders, the Imperial Luxembourg family, and the nobility and urban elite in Brabant who had concocted the terms of the joyous entry. So when Philip the Bold married Margaret of Flanders, it not only gifted him effective rule of that domain, but it set him up to expand his family's power base into those other territories as well. Brabant was the first target. One of the first things that Philip did upon his succession as the Count of Flanders in 1384 was to go and see his new sister-in-law, Joanna. He began to lay the groundwork for a possible alliance between them. So that is roughly how things stood in the major low countries on a geopolitical level in 1385. And it was in that year that Philip's most ambitious but also consequential endeavour came to fruition. You see... Philip was a wedding planner, and much like Jennifer Lopez's character in the movie of the same name, he was a really ambitious one, particularly regarding a double marriage that he arranged that took place that year at Cambrai. The wedding was of his and Margaret's children to those of the regent of Holland, Zeeland, and Hanno, Albert, and his wife, who of course was also called Margaret because, you know... Why would you want to make storytelling easy by giving different people different names? This wedding was a statement as to what Philip's rule would look like. Firstly, it was a brilliant act of diplomacy that connected the two largest dynasties in the Low Countries. His son and his daughter, John and Margaret of Burgundy, were 13 and 10 respectively. Albert's children, the siblings William and Margaret of Bavaria, were 20 and 22. So by our modern standards, this was all out weird. But for the standards of this medieval high nobility, it meant that their eventual progeny would inherit on the Burgundian side, Burgundy, Artois and Flanders, and on the Bavarian side, Holland, Zeeland and Hanno. As Wim Blockmans and Walter Prevenir put it in their amazing book, The Promised Lands, quote, with the weddings, there emerged a peaceful alliance between the two most powerful ruling dynasties in the Low Countries, and through them, it united spheres of influence in the German Empire, 
and in France, end quote. It meant that the Valois-Burgundian dynasty, which Philip had begun, would be able to expand beyond Flanders in the future. The groundwork could be laid for a centralized proto-state. That's not necessarily what Philip or anybody else was thinking about or aiming for at this time, however. Like every other character in the saga of family feudalism in the Low Countries, Philip was simply making moves to better his family fortune. The thing is that he just had overwhelming success at it. The wedding was lavish, incredibly expensive, and defined by pomp and splendor, despite the fact that there was at least a 10-year age gap between the members of each couple and that two of the four involved were still children, it was important for Philip to make it as extravagant as possible. Not for the benefit of the couples, however, but for the benefit of his own prestige. He had to legitimize the growth of his power. His nephew, the King of France, was going to be there. And a lot of the splendor was reserved for his grace. Other guests would include foreign dignitaries as well as many counts, dukes, lords, and other princes from both France and the Empire and the Low Countries. The whole thing lasted for a week. After the actual ceremony on the first day, there was a great feast, and during that, the King of France sat with the newlyweds, along with their mothers, and they were fed by other lords and great lords who came in on top of their horses and put food into their mouths. It pays to be king. And for the Duke of Burgundy and the Regent of Holland, I must say, it paid to just, well, pay. Albert, as one of the two fathers of the brides, is said to have spent as much as an entire normal year of Holland's income to pay for his part of the wedding. Philip, in his position as the Regent of France, was in charge of a whole lot of cash. Kind of like Jennifer Lopez's character Grace in the film Money Train. He was able to spend four times as much, over half of which was spent just on gifts that he gave to people, who he had targeted for making a benevolent relationship with. It was a rousing success, as through the wedding, Philip was able to pull people to him and to his family's cause, now joined with the very powerful House of Bavaria as well and he glued them there by spending an absolute fortune on being generous. From the wedding on, Philip was the undisputed big shot in town. And then the opportunity arose for him to use other methods besides weddings to further cement and increase his power. Having been granted Burgundy all those years ago, he had come far already. He ruled Flanders, the wealthiest and most urbanized territory in the Low Countries, and now his grandchildren would inherit Holland with its growing strength in trade and industries like herring, grain, wood, and beer. However, the most prestigious title in the region was stuck in between Flanders and Holland, and that was the hotly contested seat held by Philip's childless sister-in-law, Joanna, the Duchy of Brabant. The Duchy of Brabant might not have had the most powerful or the wealthiest territory, but it did carry the title Duke of Lower Lorraine, which, as you'll cast your mind back and remember, was an ancient title that stretched all the way back to the Carolingian era, and it just carried so much swank about it. Philip wanted it for his family, and so he went about figuring out how to get it. In the same year as the wedding, Joanna, the Duchess of Brabant, was confronted with a military and economic nuisance in the form of Helders. The Duke of Helders, William, 
who had come out victorious in the civil war there, now turned his attention to towns in the area of the Ophimas. William's father ruled the county of Ulick, to which these domains had formerly belonged, but which now belonged to Brabant. With an eye to his future inheritance of Ulick, William wanted them back. To these ends, in 1385, he asked for negotiation with Brabant, but these amounted to nothing. Instead, Brabantine forces were sent to bring Helders down a notch, but in response to this, William went and took the town of Graver, situated in the north of Brabant, on its border with Helders. The town's strategic location on the Meuse River meant that he could use it to launch raids and invasions into Brabant, if he could take it. And taking it turned out to be pretty simple indeed, when the son of the Castellan of Grava betrayed his father and allowed William's army in. At this point, William could probably have sought negotiations with pretty good terms for himself, including keeping the town, to solidify his advantage. But instead, he continued a policy of aggression and formally declared war on Brabant on the 14th of September, 1386. As you might imagine, Joanna responded to this by raising her own banners and calling the militia of Brabant to her cause, and they set about putting Grava to siege. The force assembled for this task may have been larger than William expected. Even though he had prepared the town for a siege, after not very long, he did indeed seek a negotiated settlement, and that was handled by the regent of Holland, Zeeland, and Hanau, Albert, who had just benefited so much by marrying his children off to Philip the Bolds. On the 21st of September then, William and Joanna agreed to abide by whatever Albert would decide in the conflict, and on the 26th of September, they both settled on the terms that he laid out, essentially putting everything back the way it had been. Both parties packed up their stuff and went to move out. Except for sneaky old William. Instead of leaving, he just waited for Joanna, her retinue, and forces to leave, and then he just further provisioned the town of Grava built up its defences even more, and refused to release his prisoners. He gave a figurative mooning to the conventions of medieval conflict mediation. Joanna, in what has been described as disappointment, sought assistance from Albert. She was probably hoping for help of the military kind. However, Albert continued on a path of diplomacy and negotiation, which was simply going nowhere. So then Joanna, caught in a bind and needing someone with money and fighting forces, turned to her brother-in-law, Philip the Bold, who had so shrewdly sought her out after just taking power the year prior. Philip showed that he was not, unlike Jane Fonda in the Jennifer Lopez classic, a monster-in-law, and gave her the support needed. He had no doubt already assured her that was she to ever require such assistance, such assistance would be forthcoming. But at a price, of course. In February of 1387, Joanna made a move that was good for her and good for Philip. Her husband, Venceslau, had died in 1383, and with the rise of Philip and her sister in Flanders, Joanna did a 180-degree turn on the issue of who would succeed her in Brabant. Instead of her husband's Luxembourg branch, she now firmly saw the future of Brabant as one in which her sister's children would be the heirs, and so now ceded to Philip the seigneurial rule of various regions and fortresses in the Ophermas, that area in southern Brabant that was under threat from William's aspirations for Ulick. Giving these to Philip saved her from the heavy expenses that were required to garrison and maintain them. However, she and the estates of Brabant 
could remain content that the lands would remain in the family via Philip's marriage to her sister. The legitimacy of the terms of the joyous entry in Brabant really depended on whether the ruler of Brabant acknowledged it as a convention. We saw in our episode on it that it was almost immediately ignored, as during the Brabant Succession War, Joanna had assured her husband's family, the powerful and imperial house of Luxembourg, that Brabant would pass to them, should she provide no male heirs. So it was by no means sacred, even though Joanna recognised it. It is very unlikely that a foreign ruler after her would pay any heed to the estates of Brabant or their constitutional conditions. This had pretty much been the case with her husband Wenceslau, who had conducted himself with much greater autocracy than the estates were comfortable with. After he died in 1383, the members of the estates of Brabant began to push for greater solidification of their own power within the political structures of Brabant. This would be much easier done with the heirs and successors of Joanna's sister, who would be familiar with the role of the estates in Brabant. For these reasons, Joanna was able to convince the estates to let her cede this land to Philip. So now, Philip went into action. In early 1387, with William's forces still obstinately entrenched in Grave, Philip got Joanna and Albert to abandon diplomatic efforts and to join him in a game of Stabby McSword to the Face, which is not the title of a Jennifer Lopez film, but definitely should be. They began discussing the removal of the Duke of Helders. Although William was a knight and a warrior of great renown and experience, once confronted with this coalition, he again sought negotiation. In late March, they all began to talk, but the negotiators from Helders kept delaying and stalling and eventually asked for a pause in proceedings until June. Joanna, probably completely fed up, instead raised her banners and called her forces to gather at the end of May, giving William until the middle of August to abandon his claims. Once more, William asked for talks, but once again these collapsed. But the reason for this delaying tactic is clear. William's plan was to utilise the greatest enmity in Western Europe at the time, that between England and France, to bolster his forces. At this point, Brabant was allied to Flanders. The Duke of Flanders was a French prince and was in control of France as its regent, and the English hated the French. So English forces joined Heldarian forces, and William went on the offensive. His men lay waste to the Marsland and began to threaten the fortresses that Philip had taken over from Joanna. Philip then, in response, moved troops into his newly acquisitioned domains in the Overmars, and the other allied forces went about trying to push the Galdarians from Brabant. They had some successes, including a raid on Ruhrmond in the south, and also in battles on Brabant's northern frontier. Again, Grave was laid to siege. Once more, talks were opened, and a truce was concluded that would last all the way into the middle of 1388. But in the weeks leading up to the end date of that truce, Joanna again began building up an intimidating and impressive allied force, until William finally offered to abandon Grave. This was accepted, but then William was told he was going to have to pay for the whole folly, and things once again turned sour. The Duke of Helders hung on to Grave. As is the case with every town ever to be occupied or to be put to siege, 
Let's just for a moment spare a thought for the poor people living in Grave, who had nothing to do with any of this, probably weren't even sure what William was fighting for, which was simply to be able to inherit certain parts in his father's county of Ulick, and who all had to deal with literally years of being occupied by Geldarian and English troops, who ate their food and took up their taverns, and probably didn't pay for all that much. Let's spare them a thought. And talking about things that don't pay for all that much, here's an ad break. We will rejoin the war between Brabant and Helders after this. Welcome back. A stalemate of broken treaties and uncertainty continued in the Brabant and Gelders War. William left a small English contingent to defend Grave and moved the large majority of his troops and his knights to Nijmegen, creating a defensive line behind him as he went. Even though the Brabantine forces were large, they could not surround Grave until they took the other side of the Meuse River, and thus morale began to drop amongst the besieging forces, as the town withstood everything thrown against it. They tried to build a bridge, but the Geldarian forces came out and destroyed it. Instead, it was decided that they would cross the river downstream at a place called Ravenstein. William knew that they were going to try to cross the river, but he wasn't sure exactly where they would try it. He cunningly split his army in three, sending one force slightly upriver from Krave to a place called Kauk, and another one slightly downriver towards Ravenstein itself. He kept the third positioned in between them to assist whichever force was confronted with the invading Brabantine troops first. When these forces reached Ravenstein, they overcame William's small defensive unit holding the bridge there, but then they set about sacking the town showing a tactical lack of discipline. The people of Ravenstein fled towards Nijmegen, and this, along with smoke that was seen rising from it in the distance, told William where they had crossed the river, and where to send his extra unit. The Brabant army then was busy sacking Ravenstein, but they fell into a panic when William's forces began to descend upon them. What had been an attempt to invade Helders became aught but a forlorn hope. And that, ladies and gentle people, forlorn hope, we bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Indeed, the term forlorn hope comes from the Dutch forlorn hope, meaning a lost heap. It is a term that literally describes a group of combatants put into a military operation where their chances of dying are very high. Also, the second of those two words, hope, does not mean the same as the English hope. It has become a false friend, a mistaken cognate. Forlorn hope, dear listeners, is not a lack of positivity for the future, but is quite literally the probability for a lost heap of soldiers. And we bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Anyway, this invasion by Brabant was a forlorn hope. Two hours into the encounter on the north bank of the Meuse, and most of their troops had either drowned in the river while trying to flee, been cut down, or were taken prisoner. It was a devastating loss for Joanna, and suddenly William was very much on the front foot in this war. 
Now it was Joanna who sought peace terms. A month-long truce was agreed to, and in this time, Joanna set about once again trying to preempt the demands that would come with the conclusion of the truce. She released the towns of Brabant from their military service for three months in return for enough money to hire 1,600 troops from Flanders and France. But unfortunately for her, William had also been planning for the end of the truce, and before Joanna's supplementary forces could arrive, he launched an invasion of Brabant. For three days, his troops pillaged the area around the town of Sertogenbosch. By seeking English support, however, William had defied the King of France, who had recently come of age and was now ruling in his own right. Charles VI, although young, was beginning to push back against the dominance of his now former regent and uncle, Philip the Bold. Despite this, he too decided that enough was enough, and that this Helder's tomfoolery with the English must end. In September 1388, he led a large host towards the Duchy of Ulich. The Duke of Ulich, William's father, who had supported his son, quickly submitted to Charles's display of force. This done, the royal army, together with the allied Brabantine forces, continued on towards Helders, to put an end to the whole thing once and for all. William refused to meet such a large force in battle, and his father was deployed to go and talk some sense into him, which he finally did. William served up platitudes of apology and denial to the King of France, and he agreed to abide by his decision in resolving this whole matter. In October 1390, a peace treaty was finally agreed to and signed. The threat to Brabant from Helders was over, for a few years at least, and it was largely thanks to the involvement of Philip the Bold and the French connection that he brought with him. And that is the main point of this story. Taking the opportunity that William of Helders' ambition had created, as well as using his access to the French treasury, Philip had brought Brabant almost completely into his debt. By the end of the war, Brabant owed Philip 15,000 gold coin ecus, a fortune. Other debts accrued by Joanna by rich lords in Brabant were also crippling her, and so she allowed Philip to buy these out as well. Steadily, his grasp on Brabant tightened and tightened. Kind of like you see the snake do in the Jennifer Lopez classic film Anaconda. In the same year that the war ended, 1390, Joanna and Philip met in Tournai and secretly agreed to formalise the succession of Brabant. This took negotiation with the estates of Brabant, who were invested in maintaining a perceived inviolability of the already very much violated joyous entry. At the end of these talks, it was official. Brabant would pass to Margaret and not to the Luxembourg clan. To placate the estates, of course, it would not pass directly to Philip or to the next-in-line Duke of Burgundy, but to another of their children. However, it carried with it the understanding that Philip would be Brabant's governor. Joanna herself apparently said that only by Philip could, quote, our land be held in peace and calm against any other party, better than by any other prince, lord, or lady, end quote. Joanna would rule for another 14 years, and her troubles with Helders would continue, including another war in the latter half of the 1390s, but the point is that one of the great plays of Burgundianization had taken place. From this point, Philip and his burgeoning Burgundian dynasty not only controlled Flanders, not only controlled the future of Holland, Zeeland, and Hanno, 
but now Brabant and Limburg too. It is not clear if there was a certain point that Philip fully invested himself in the fate of the Low Countries over his native France. He had been France's regent until Charles VI reached his majority in 1388. When this happened, Philip was brought down a rung or two on the ladder of power at the French court. So it could have been that he chose the Low Countries around then. But this relegation also only lasted four years. Charles VI ended up expressing one of those random afflictions that monarchs can be prone to, insanity. And in 1392, Philip once again came into the ruling council, and there he would remain. But although he would spend most of the rest of his life in Paris, he had set up his low country domains to advance with a continued autonomy from the power of France, with a flavour that was particularly of his own making, Burgundian. Essentially, it is pretty clear that Philip saw his family's future glow brighter in the prosperity and vitality of Flanders and their future low country domains than in the potential that lay in taking personal rule over France and bringing Flanders into the French realm once and for all. Indeed, Philip could well have taken complete control of France. Instead, he just ransacked its treasury and paid to take control of the low country. In Flanders, he sought to counter the imbalance between the cities and the countryside by establishing a new court of appeals in which people in areas outside the city's bounds could seek the Count's justice rather than going through the magistracies of Ghent, Bruges or Ypres, who, quite frankly, likely didn't care much for them or their complaints. In 1390, Philip also appointed a governor to oversee this, which gave a comital presence to the wider landscape of Flemish justice that was stronger than it had been. Through smart diplomacy, aka just giving stuff to people, he laid the groundwork in 1396 for a truce to be called in the Hundred Years' War, which in itself would allow for the eventual creation of an Anglo-Flemish trade agreement some 11 years later. This took away power from the pro-English factions in Flanders, who had been the adjutants in all the rebellions that the county had seen over the previous century and a bit. Most of that chaos had generally stemmed from people trying to protect their access to wool. Although there would be other rebellions in the centuries to follow, this sapping of judicial power from the cities, alongside his other centralization methods, further fortified the Dukes of Burgundy against such uprisings. Philip dealt with potential major social crises in a pretty progressive way, the Great Schism of the Church that started in the 1370s, in which a Pope and clerical headquarters were set up in Avignon, France, to contend with that in the Vatican, threatened to divide the Low Countries. It was truly divisive because, as we know, everybody was super smitten with the supremacy of the Church. Such simmering unrest could boil over into something way worse. In the Peace of Tournai in 1385 that ended the Ghent War, Philip... Naturally a pro-Avignon Frenchie, nonetheless granted towns in Flanders the right to choose for themselves which side they would take in the Great Schism. This was pretty progressive stuff, especially considering that the big cities went with the opposite and pro-Roman position that the English crown took. But rather than forcing his point of view down their throats via persecution of proclaimed heresy, Philip instead countered the opposite view with a shrewd propaganda offensive in which he employed theologians and lecturers 
to make their way through his territories and speak in favour of Avignon. By 1393, every part of Flanders, except Ghent, of course, intransigently rebellious Ghent, every part was with Philip in supporting the Avignon papacy. All these early actions by Philip were not instantly noticeable. It is only in hindsight that many of the moves that he made become evident as master strokes in establishing himself and his family name at the forefront of European politics. He became a reliable patron of the arts, granting commissions to Flemish artists to create paintings, sculptures, and much more. The construction of what would be his elaborate and magnificent tomb was one such example of how he made it clear that his court would support cultural advancements, all of which would begin to seep into the fabric of Flanders and the Low Countries. Again, turning to Wim Blockmans and Walter Prevenir, quote, These commissions began the great association of the Dukes with the most talented artists of Northern Europe, an association that lasted beyond the end of the dynasty. End quote. So then, centralized rule, diplomacy, gift-giving, creating a sense of culture and putting value in art all became the main hallmarks of Philip's reign. With his expansionism, he played such a long game that he only survived to witness its very basic first phase. In 1396, Joanna ceded Limburg to him for good, which was nice, but he was able to enjoy it for only eight years. In April 1404, Philip the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy, Flanders, Artois, and Limburg, died at a tavern in Halle, in the county of Hanau. His sons John and Anton were both with him. At his passing, he held no less than 15 titles and was the undisputed Lord of the Lowlands. Philip's funeral exhibited the same level of pomp, splendor, and ceremony as befitted a man who had so masterfully used pomp, splendor, and ceremony to forge for himself a position as arguably Western Europe's most powerful prince. It was a grand affair, and it would involve a dignified and lengthy procession, escorting his embalmed corpse from Halle in Hanau to the magnificent tomb that he had already had built in Dijon, in Burgundy. Perhaps this was his way of saying, don't be fooled by the rocks that I got, I'm still, I'm still Philip from Dijon. The immediate expenses alone necessitated that 6,000 gold crowns worth of some of his plateware and jewellery be sold. His body was clothed in the habit of a monk, wrapped in the finest wax cloth and three cowhides before being placed in a leaden coffin that weighed over 300 kilograms. This was placed in a carriage that was pulled by six horses and which 60 black-robed and hooded mourners trailed behind solemnly. A massive cloth of gold with black trim and a great velvet cross down its center adorned the hearse that carried the coffin and from which the Duke's coat of arms was on full display. The finest cloth from Bruges had been sent to all 12 of the churches that his body would stop at on the nearly 500-kilometer journey to the Burgundian capital, a journey that would take weeks. Philip's sons, various other nobles and members of his family and household retinue attended it, and high-ranking clergy and nobility would come out to greet it as it entered each new city or town. From the moment it set off from Halle, there would have been no person of any class occupation or level of education anywhere who could mistake the dignity and esteem in which the body inside was held. Behind him he left Margaret, the Duchess of Flanders, Artois and Rettel. 
However, Margaret would also die a year later, and now their children would inherit the whole lot. Surprisingly, in a very non-Frankish manner, the three brothers acted amicably towards each other and worked together upon their parents' deaths. They didn't squabble over it at all in the fashion that so many before them had done so. There seems to have been quite a team spirit about them. John, who was already the Count of Nevers, also became now the Duke of Burgundy and Flanders. From his mother, he then inherited other titles that came attached to the rule of Flanders, such as Artois, Franche Comte, and Mekela. Because of his parents' astuteness over five decades of European politicking, John would rule this pretty big domain and also sit on the Regents' Council of France as its most powerful member. Anton, the second son, would be the benefactor of Philip and Margaret's work in Brabant and Limburg. But again, the brothers were all on the same page. For instance, a part of the family's jewellery was to be sold, and all of them agreed that the first 25,000 crowns of the proceeds would go straight to paying off debt in Brabant. Anton was not even the Duke of Brabant yet, but the brothers understood that they only stood to gain because securing Brabant was better for the overall cause of Team Burgundy. In Brabant, by 1404, Joanna was also going senile, and the month after Philip's demise, she signed her title over to her now-widowed sister, Margaret, who ten days later passed the inheritance on to Anton. He would rule as the Duke of Limburg, the Margrave of Antwerp, and the Governor of Brabant until Joanna's eventual death in 1406, at which point he also became the new Duke of Brabant. This was the deal that had been brokered between Philip, Joanna, Margaret, and the estates of Brabant. It is a deal that further displays the genius of Philip and Margaret's long-term planning. Philip the Bold had learned his style of rule growing up in the French court. He'd had a pretty wise older brother who'd been king, and he'd spent decades working with him. Then he'd spent decades working with and learning from his also very able father-in-law, Louis of Marley. Both John and Anton, and I suppose their younger brother Philip, had in turn grown up watching and learning from him and Margaret, whose territories they were now inheriting. Anton, despite being obliged by the terms of the joyous entry upon taking rule as the new Duke of Brabant, brought his father's style of rule to that ducal court, and would set in motion similar administrative and judicial structures that would begin to align the rule of Brabant with his brother's rule of Flanders. With Philip's political accomplishments and subtle expansionism, and then passing these on to his sons, Burgundianization had well and truly taken root in the Low Countries. The youngest brother Philip got pretty much bugger all, comparatively speaking. John, who inherited most of it, gave his title for Nevers to Philip, pretty much exactly as he would give an old toy to a younger sibling upon getting a new and better and shinier one, and Philip also got Rethel from his mother. Philip stayed strong, though, to Team Burgundy, apparently just accepting his lot. The sun, then, was now rising on the Burgundian Netherlands, and although this is not supposed to be a great man account of the founding of the Valois-Burgundy dynasty, we felt it was important to highlight the crucial role that Philip the Bold played in making it happen. We've seen for centuries these noble families were fighting, feuding, marrying each other in a constant struggle for supremacy. Now we've finally seen it accomplished so well, indeed so well that the term Burgundian Borgondis would enter and still to this day carry cultural weight in the Netherlands. If something is Borgondis in Dutch, 
It is opulent. It's lavish. It's extravagant. It is the pomp, splendor, and ceremony which became the hallmark of political style for which the Dukes of Burgundy would become renowned. And that began with Philip the Bold. Interestingly, as my very Hollander fiancé told me, Burgundis to her, is a culture that has a particularly southern connotation to it and is associated with Brabant for the reasons which we have gone into in this episode. But how the ancestors of today's Hollanders would deal with the encroachment of the Burgundians after that and how Philip and Margaret's son, John the Fearless, and his sons would maintain momentum for the rise of the Burgundians is something we are going to get into in the episodes to come. And that brings us to the end of today's epic long episode of the History of the Netherlands. And I'm afraid, dear listeners, that this will be the final episode for 2019. We are absolutely stoked with how the first year of this podcast has gone, and we absolutely could not have done it without all of your support. We'd love to send out a massive thank you to each and every one of you. The last episode we released was our special interview with the former director of the Amsterdam Artist Zoo, Martin Frankenhuis. In our excitement, we neglected our favorite people on the planet, who are of course our Patreon subscribers who follow the same tactics as Philip the Bold and earn our affections by giving us lavish gifts. So thank you very much to Corey Terrasmitter. Smitty has written to us a couple of times, and we love the interaction, so if you've been shy about getting in contact or about supporting us on Patreon, be like Smitty. Benjamin Forsyth, or as we call him, Philip the Bold, the man with the foresight to set up a dominant realm in podcast sponsorship, thank you very much. Bengt Okjonsson, Ackers to his mates, has chipped in and we say, tuck you very much. We say tuck because we presume you're Swedish. If you're not, here is a free version of a Swede saying your name. Bengt Ulke Andersson. If you are by chance Norwegian, we really apologize for that. We want to thank and wish luck also to our mate Anonymous. Anonymous is on the search for a Dutch husband because she likes guys that look like 90s Calvin Klein models. Although it might be difficult without giving your name out, we believe in you, Nonny. If you're into dudes who wear jeans and blazers as the height of fashion, then you will love Dutch frat boys. Then there's Larry Tans. We want to hold you closer, Tiny Dancer. Thank you so much for your support. Smuticus, whose backstory we imagine includes leading a massive BDSM slave uprising against the Roman state, has given us three bucks a show. So you know what that means. Everybody together. Smuticus, Smuticus, Smuticus. Mace Decker, the ace from outer space. Cheers very much. Kyle Bass, the K-Bus. Thanks, fella, for giving us about tree fitty. K-Bus, 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 K. Thank you very much also to Daniel Ruff, who we call Jared. You can figure that one out yourself. And finally, Hanukkah van den Boom. She from the tree makes me happy. If you want to be like these amazing people, go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands for a buck a show. You get all of our episodes with no ad breaks. It helps us out massively, and we absolutely, genuinely appreciate everybody's support. If you are in a particularly gift-giving and festive mood, you can give us the gift of an iTunes review. Don't forget to do that. Takes a couple of seconds. Helps us out massively. And with all of that, that's it. We're taking a break for roughly a month over Christmas and New Year. 
So don't expect any new History of the Netherlands episodes in January. We'll be back with regular transmissions from February 2020. If you find yourself going into serious withdrawals at the lack of us in your life, we have other podcasts that you may not have listened to yet. Check them all out on our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com. Thanks for supporting us through what has been a truly amazing year. Merry Christmas to everybody. Feine Kerstache allemaal. May the next decade be a little less tumultuous than this one. Peace. Say bye, boys. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.